Well, as you well know, we've been discussing and teaching through um, the, the Bible's position on baptism. And we started this several weeks ago, first by speaking about the meaning of baptism, where we went to Colossians chapter 2 and made the very simple argument that baptism in the new covenant replaces circumcision of the old covenant. So you, you have the same gospel uh, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But the signs that represent the old covenant and the new covenant are different signs. One sign is a bloody sign, circumcision. The other sign is, is a water sign. It's, it's baptism. Um, that sort of understanding of the meaning of baptism, that it flows from our understanding and, and principle, the meaning of circumcision, as a sign of God's covenant, as a testament to God's promises, is absolutely fundamental in understanding why we do what we do when we baptize someone, what, what it is that we are conveying. Circumcision in, in the Old Testament did not save. As a matter of fact, the only people that circumcision was applied to um, when they were believers were those who were adults. Everyone else who received circumcision received circumcision before they made a profession of faith. And I think that's an important point to make because what it tells us is that Jews did not believe, at least according to what Scripture taught. Of course, later you had Jews that did believe that circumcision saved, namely the Judaizers in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, Jews did not believe that circumcision saved. But you have many people today who would say that works don't save, and yet they have a view of baptism, which is now replaced circumcision, which implies that it's something more important than the gospel. And I'm talking in particular about Baptists. I grew up as a Baptist, and Baptists um, historically have held that you cannot lose your salvation. Um, that you're saved to the uttermost, that works are not part of salvation. You do anything to merit your salvation, and you don't do anything to keep your salvation. However, there are streams of Baptists that do not hold to the doctrines of grace. So they are inconsistent because on the one hand, they want to say they had nothing to do with their salvation. On the other hand, they emphasize the fact that faith activates their salvation. As Reformed people, we disagree with that. We say that regeneration comes before faith. Faith is simply a response to the sovereign work of God. And some of these same Baptists, not only in the more Arminian camp of Baptists, but also in the, in re, the Reformed Baptist circles, although they say that, that, that salvation is only by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and they emphasize the sovereignty of God and salvation, they seem to have such an elevated view of baptism, which suggests that somehow baptism is equal to the gospel or, in some cases, more important than the gospel. And I, I want you to think about what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that all Reformed Baptists believe you can lose your salvation, nor am I saying that Reformed Baptists believe that, that baptism is somehow part of salvation. But in practice... The way that they elevate baptism as only being something for professing believers, that the church is only made up of the regenerate, 
It's only made up of those who have been baptized upon profession of faith. They are leaving out a huge swath, not only of members of their own family who aren't baptized and therefore not part of the church until they're in their 20s before they make a valid profession of faith, but they are leaving out huge swaths of other Christians around the world who don't agree with them on their position of baptism, namely Presbyterians. And so at the heart of our discussion on baptism, maybe the biggest thing that I want you to take from this is the concept of Christian unity. The concept that Ephesians 4 is very clear, we are to be united in the Lord. We are to have harmony in the Lord. And we aren't to to draw lines where God didn't draw lines. So if you hold to credo baptism or believer's baptism, that's fine. That's an acceptable orthodox position. But don't look down your nose at someone who does not hold the believer's baptism, someone who holds to covenantal infant baptism, because they, like you, aren't saying that baptism saves. In fact, their theology is more consistent and more logical because they're saying we're applying water to a baby that can do nothing to save themselves. And this water rite is not saving them. This water rite is simply a testimony to the promise of God that he will sovereignly save his elect people. And so in many ways, this discussion on baptism has more to do with practical Christian living and our attitudes. Are we going to have an attitude of pride, which um, is more exclusive than God is for his own people? There should be unity between Presbyterians and between Baptists. And in my opinion, there should be that unity within the context of the local church. Why are we so quick to say, well, yes, those Presbyterians are our brothers or those Baptists are our brothers, but we can't fellowship with them in the context of a local church. Why not? When throughout history it is clear that as long as you don't hold to baptismal regeneration, the idea that baptism saves you, then whatever your position on baptism is, it is likely that it is orthodox. If you believe in covenantal infant baptism and not baptismal regeneration, or you believe in credo-baptism, that baptism is only to be applied to professing believers, then you are within the orthodox camp of Christianity. And you need to be very, very careful not to separate yourselves from other Christians who hold a different view. It would be the same thing with respect to the Lord's Supper. There are Baptist churches who believe that only members of that particular church are allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. So that if another Baptist who is a true believer came into that congregation, they would not be allowed to take the Lord's Supper if Lord's Supper was offered on that particular Sunday. You have other Baptists who say, well, you don't have to be a member of our particular church to observe the sacrament of baptism with us, but you do have to be someone who has been baptized post your confession of faith in Christ. And to me, that is to exclude from the Lord's table a true Christian, when, here's the other reality, there are probably false Christians who have been baptized post their profession of faith in that congregation and members of that church that you're gladly offering the Lord's Supper to. So in that case, you could be refraining a true believer just because they've not been immersed and baptized upon profession from partaking of the holy sacrament and yet embrace a goat. 
who is a member of that church because they've been immersed and baptized upon profession of faith. When you think about these issues in those contexts, it should become, I pray that it becomes very clear to you that really what we're dealing with are two things. Number one, the theological issue. We have, to, we have to ascertain what the Bible teaches, and only one of these positions can be correct. Either credo-baptism is biblical and infant baptism is not, or infant baptism is biblical and credo-baptism is not. They cannot both be correct. But just because they're not both correct doesn't mean you disfellowship from other Christians that disagree with your position. And I think the meaning of baptism, understanding that baptism replaces circumcision, helps clarify and make the playing field level in terms of the outworking of our views on infant baptism or credo-baptism. Because what we're saying is that baptism is simply a sign, just like circumcision was a sign. We're not saying that baptism saves, just like circumcision did not save. And that was really the point of the first Sunday school class on the meaning of baptism. Then secondly, we looked at the mode of baptism. The mode of baptism talks about how you actually apply it. Do you dunk someone? Do you sprinkle them? Do you spray them? Do you pour water over them? What do you do? And even there, we didn't talk about the timing so much. That is, should it be applied to a baby? We just talked about the mode itself. How is the water to be applied? And then last week, we started to talk about the membership uh, with respect to baptism. Who is considered a member of the new covenant? Is it only professing believers who have been baptized, or are the children of believers included and considered members of the covenant? Well, if they are members of the covenant, then they therefore are members of the church as well. If they are not members of the covenant, then they aren't to be members of the church. And of course, that latter view is the view of Baptists. What we started to look at last week were 10 lines of evidence that the children of believing parents within the new covenant are indeed members of the new covenant. To say that they are members of the new covenant, as we stated last week over and over and over again, is not to say that we are saying they are the truly elect of God. We're simply saying that as children born to believing parents, they receive the overflow of the covenantal blessings of God. For example, a Christian parent brings their child to church each Lord's Day. That child hears the gospel. A faithful Christian mom and dad will teach their children the scriptures on a regular basis. A faithful mom and dad will uh, raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There will be rules in a Christian household. There will be um, the difference between right and wrong and the teaching on the differences between what is right and what is wrong, what is lawful, what is unlawful. A pagan home doesn't have any of those covenantal blessings or privileges. So even if your position on baptism is more of the believer's baptism position, more of the credo-baptism position, you're still going to have difficulty with figuring out where do the children of believing parents belong? Do they belong in the church or not? Are they members of the church or not? Are they recipients of the covenant blessings of God, the promises of God to bless godly families or not? 
And it seems to me that the scriptures are more than abundantly clear that children are members of the new covenant by, by, by virtue of the fact that they are physically the descendants of believers. That would be the position that I would take. If that's not the position you take, it doesn't mean that you're less of a Christian than I am. But what it does mean is I want to challenge your thinking because you have to have some position on children in the church. Are they no different than the pagans in the world? I mean, so is it therefore wrong to teach a child to sing Jesus loves me? Is it more appropriate to teach a child of believing parents that they are cut off from the promises of God? That they do not have the faith of their believing parents. They don't have the religion of their believing parents. A child like that is going to feel neglected, cut off, separated from the people of God. And it is no wonder that so many children that grow up in godly homes and in churches end up not going to church when they're an adult. It's not a priority for them because... From the time they were little, they were told they weren't ready to be believers. From the time they were young, they were told that they don't understand enough about the gospel to be baptized. From the time that they were young, you don't understand sin enough to repent of sin. What kind of sin have you committed? See, that's a low view of total depravity. So this is a very critically important issue. Ten lines of evidence that teach us from the Bible that children are in fact members of the new covenant. Now before I review the first five and then we'll go over the last five, let me just say this. We're not even talking (laughs) at this point. We sort of tabled the discussion of baptism. I hope you've been able to see that. We're not really even talking about water. We're not really even talking about baptism. The only argument I'm trying to make at this point is that children of believing parents are part of the new covenant. So let's table the discussion of baptism, and you'll see why when we come to the end of all of this this morning. Ten lines of evidence that children of believing parents are part of the new covenant. Number one, we saw the scripture prophecies of the Bible always make a special mention of children. And I'm not going to go through all of the passages, but we looked at Jeremiah 32, Isaiah 59, Ezekiel chapter 37, which all include the children of believers as being recipients of the promises of God. In fact, God goes out of his way in these prophecies, which are prophecies of the new covenant, that the children of believers have every reason to expect they will be recipients of the promises of God. Now, obviously, faith is required to receive the promises of God. But nevertheless, you have the promises of God in Scripture prophecy related to the new covenant, which explicitly and specifically and very directly mentions children. So it's hard for me to say that you have believing parents and you have unbelievers and that the children of these Uh, believing parents are in the same category as these unbelievers and these pagans. That's not how the Bible prophesies the days of the new covenant. The children are included. 
That is a line of evidence that suggests children are members of the new covenant. If they're included in the promises and the prophecies of the new covenant, then obviously they are members of that new covenant. Secondly, Scripture demonstrates that children of believing parents, um, regardless of the various administrations of the one covenant of grace, are always included. So it's not just the new covenant. We saw this last week. It's also the Mosaic Covenant where children were clearly included. Um, The psalmist uh, describes the blessings of the Lord coming to children. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 90, verse 1. I had my wife paint a, a picture of this verse and hang it in our house. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. The Jews throughout the Old Testament would sing that When they came to worship, they would sing the Psalms. They would sing about the fact that God has promised to bless generation after generation after generation of believers and that those children have every expectation that they are part of the promises and the salvation of God. So this is is true regardless of the covenant, whether it's the Mosaic covenant or the Davidic covenant or the new covenant. Children are always included in these promises. And we even looked at Mary's Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, where she quotes Psalm 103. She praises God that he has been faithful from one generation to the next. Well, Mary was actually living in the days of the new covenant. She had the Christ child who established the new covenant in her womb. When she sang that psalm, there's no indication that God's successive blessings on generations ended with the new covenant. But you see, that's what Reformed Baptists teach, just to be clear. They teach that that generational succession of God's blessings on godly families ceased or ended with the days of the new covenant. And that children of believing parents are no different than pagans in the world. Well, Mary certainly did not hold that theology. She praises God at the very beginning of the days of the new covenant that that God is faithful generation after generation, quoting Psalm 103. She applies the Old Testament to her own family. And yet many Reformed Baptists won't apply Psalm 103 to their family. What better parent should a Christian follow today than Mary, the mother of our Lord? And yet so many Reformed Baptists have no place for the way Mary viewed her own child and her other children who were siblings to Jesus, who she clearly would have viewed as recipients of the promises and the salvation of God. The third line of evidence that children of believing parents are members of the New Covenant is simply this. The New Covenant promises and even reaffirms that there will be a good relationship between believing parents and their children, and that there will be a reformation of sorts. We looked at at Luke chapter 1 and and verse 17. This is um, a reference to um, the, the preaching of John. The angel comes to Zechariah and says, verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, verse 17. Why? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
So in the days of the new covenant, there was this promise of a reformation of fatherhood, a reformation of parenthood, a reformation that would take place in which parents, beginning with fathers, the heads of their homes, would repent of their sin, they would be baptized by John in the Jordan, and they, as the priest of their home, would teach their children the promises of God, the salvation of God, and the law of God. No longer would there be this mass rebellion in Israel. You remember in the Old Testament, rebellion among children was so common that there had to be legislation on how to deal with a recalcitrant son, even going to the length of stoning him to death for his disobedience to his parents. Well, in the days of the new covenant, there has been a promise a reaffirmation, a reformation of sorts that God's salvation blessings coming through the Christ child is going to have massive implications for the family. There's going to be a reformation of sorts. And there was. Let me just fast forward just a bit to later on in the New Testament. What do you find? Well, you find the gospel being preached and you find whole households. Whole households either believing or being baptized. Now see, that's where the debate is. The believers were certainly baptized, but the question is, were there children in those homes who didn't make a profession of faith who were baptized, infants? And we might not ever be able to answer that second question, but what we can confirm is that there was a reformation, just as Luke one seventeen predicted, that the hearts of children would be turned to their fathers and the hearts of fathers would be turned to their children. You had reformation and revival and the days of the new covenant that began in the home where whole homes were entering churches, worshiping together, hearing the preaching of the gospel. There's a fourth line of evidence that children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. And that is the language of, for example, Hebrews 8 and other passages in Hebrews that says that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. In fact, Hebrews makes this clear throughout. That the new covenant is better. Why is it better? Well, it's better because, first of all, this is the most obvious point. Christ has come, right? We're no longer looking forward to his coming. He has come. And not only has he come, but he has finished um, what the Father sent him to do. He has died upon the cross. He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of God. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. And in the kingdom of the new covenant, it is considered a better kingdom than the kingdom of the Old Testament. Because Christ has come, Christ is ruling. But not only that, you have this mass inclusion of Gentiles. It's the Great Commission, right? Go into all the world. Baptize them. And teach them to observe all I've commanded to you, Jesus says. So you have a mass inclusion of Gentiles in the new covenant, which makes the new covenant better. That's not the way it was in the old covenant. You had some slaves and some servants, and you even had a whole city, Nineveh, repent, pagans. But it was few and far between that Gentiles converted on a mass scale. In the new covenant, they do. That's one reason it's better. It's also better because the covenant sign, which is now baptism, is applied not just to males as it was only done in the Old Testament in circumcision, but now 
the sign of the covenant is applied to females as well. In fact, a verse that, that I didn't get to, which I really regretted, I've been waiting all week to point you to, um, is Galatians chapter 3. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 just for a minute. This is a very interesting passage to me because Paul speaks about the better quality of the new covenant just in two verses. Galatians 3, we'll start with verse 28. Paul makes this statement. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek in the new covenant. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What is Paul doing? He's saying, you Gentile believers, there's no difference between you and Jewish believers. You're all of Abraham's offspring because you've demonstrated faith. You're, you're the son of Abraham by virtue of the fact that you had the faith of Abraham. And he even goes on to say, there's, there's not even a distinction between Jews and Greeks in the spiritual sense. Now, physically, there's still ethnic differences. That's, that's not Paul's point. He's saying that if you're a Christian, there's no difference. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. You're Abraham's son. You're part of his offspring, which is a verse to argue against racism. But that's not Paul's main point. And he says there's not slavery or free. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not still slaves in the world. He just means that whether you're a slave or not in the world, you're all free in Christ. There's no difference. And he says there's no male and female. Now, he's not arguing for androgyny. He's not arguing for transgenderism here. He's not saying there's no distinction in the sexes. Genesis 2 still holds up. We'll see that this morning. Jesus quotes that in Mark 10 to argue for marriage. God created male and female. They're meant to be joined together. Heterosexual marriage is the only biblical marriage. He's not saying that there's no distinction between the sexes. What he's saying is that in Christ, spiritually, the man is not better than the woman and the woman is not better than the man. There's still role differences. And how do we know that... The new covenant is better than the old covenant with regard to the sexes. In this sense, the female receives the sign of the covenant just as the male does. In the old covenant, that wasn't the case. For God's providential reasons, it wasn't the case. But nevertheless, it wasn't the case. The new covenant is better because males and females have that right of the sign of baptism applied to them, which was different in the days of the Old Covenant when the rite of circumcision was only applied to males. Now, what I think is interesting is verse 27. Let's get back up to it. Paul says, for as many of you as were, what does that say? Baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Very interesting language. Paul says one of the things that makes the New Covenant better is that male and female are baptized into Christ. And therefore, they receive the sign of baptism. Now, if someone wants to tell me that the new covenant is better because Gentiles are massively included on a mass scale and females receive the, the sign of the covenant, just as males do, and those are the only reasons that it's better, and that, oh, by the way, children of believers should not receive this sign unless they make a profession of faith. And children of believers are not included in any sense as members of the new covenant. My question is, then how is the new covenant better? Okay, it's 
The sign is applied to male and female, I get it. Mass inclusion of Gentiles, I get it. But you're telling me that the new covenant is better because it includes on a mass scale Gentiles, but it's not including the precious children of believers? Now, maybe you could make that argument if we hadn't have said everything that we said at the beginning about how children were always included in the promises of God. (laughs) Through the Psalms and through the prophecies of the new covenant that always included children. If you didn't have that, then maybe you could make an argument that the new covenant is better simply because the Gentiles are grafted in. But you can't be honest with Scripture and say the new covenant is better if you're going to leave out the most precious group, which is children. They were included in the old covenant. So how is the new covenant better if the children are not included? Little children, innocent children who probably the majority of people here today, and I could be wrong, would be under the assumption that a baby that dies in the womb or a baby that that dies prematurely, you know, without living a normal life, automatically goes to heaven when they die. What's your basis of that? Well, you only really need one passage, although there could be many. You only need one. David was confident that the child conceived from his sin. He would see again someday. That's enough evidence for me that all children who die prematurely, who die in the womb, infants, small children, go to heaven when they die. So why are we willing to say that about pagan children? But then the children of believing parents were saying they have no place as members of the new covenant and really no place in the church. That doesn't seem to fit logically with what Scripture teaches. If we're honest with the emphasis of Scripture on the better qualities of the new covenant. Not only that, but in Hebrews chapter 8, you have the longest quotation from the Old Testament in the New Testament in the entire Bible. Did you follow what I said? That's kind of complex. In Hebrews 8, you have the longest Old Testament quotation in one part in the entire Bible, entire New Testament. And what is that prophecy that's quoted in Hebrews 8? It is the prophecy of the new covenant. It is the prophecy of Jeremiah. It is alluding to Ezekiel 37. It is alluding to Joel chapter 2. It is a direct quote from Jeremiah 31. And what did we just say? The first line of evidence that children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. We said it's all the prophecies of the new covenant that include children. That prophecy that is quoted includes children. And maybe those children are even included in that phrase from the least of them to the greatest of them. They will all know the Lord. From the least to the greatest. From the little ones to the adults. So that if the new covenant is better than the old covenant, then at a minimum it has to include children because the old covenant did as well. Then we saw the fifth line of evidence was that Jesus confirms the inclusion of children in the kingdom of the new covenant. We looked at Matthew 19, Luke chapter 18, Matthew chapter 21. I won't go back through all of those, but we affirm the fact that Jesus welcomed the little ones and when the disciples... Uh, tried to prevent them from coming to Jesus, for him actually to bless them, to pick them up and bless them, Jesus said, forbid them not to come unto me, for 
unto such ones belong the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the new covenant belongs to these little ones. Now there's a sixth line of evidence that says the children of believers are members of the new covenant. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul confirms, number six, this is the sixth line of evidence. The Apostle Paul confirms that the children of believers in the new covenant hold a special place. They're considered sanctified or set apart within the strictures and the confines of the new covenant. Verse 14, Paul's speaking about when two unbelievers get married and then one of those spouses becomes a believer. Okay? There's two questions that need to be asked. The Bible is clear we're not to be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. So there's two questions. What do you do with that unbelieving spouse that's yet converted? And then secondly, what do you do with the children? Those are practical questions. Verse 14, Paul says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. That is the word sanctified, set apart. He holds a special place in the eyes of God. Not because he's a Christian, but because his wife is a Christian, he adds special blessings on him and considers him sanctified. For the unbelieving husband is made holy. Why? Because of his wife. Because the wife is so precious in the eyes of God, as a child of God, God smiles upon the unbelieving husband. It doesn't mean he smiles upon him unto salvation, necessarily. But he accepts him as set apart, different than other pagans. In the mind of God, and the unbelieving wife is also made holy because of her husband. So if you have a husband who is a Christian and the wife has not converted, she's still considered holy. But then Paul says this, otherwise, comma, your children would be unclean. But they're not unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Same word, they are sanctified. They are set apart. There is some sense in which they are distinct from other pagan children. Now, if it is true that a non-ideal marriage, let me define that, an unbeliever and a believer, if it is true that God blesses the marriage of an unbeliever and a believer and considers the unbelieving spouse holy and considers the children holy and set apart, then don't you think that an ideal marriage between a godly wife and a godly husband, the Bible says who are both holy and sanctified in a salvific sense, don't you think that their children are also considered holy by God? They're in a more ideal situation. They're sanctified as well. If it's true in the non-ideal situation, it's also true in the ideal situation. Not only that, but Paul seems to sort of press home this idea that the children of believers are part of the new covenant and holy. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, where has our time gone? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says, children, 
Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And then he goes back, he talks to the fathers, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a covenantal verse. God expects Christian parents to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Instruct them in the promises of God. And if they believe those promises, they'll have salvation. But that's not the main thing I want you to see. Back in verse 22, Paul addressed Christian wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In verse 25, he addresses Christian husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And in chapter 6 and verse 1, he addresses children. Children, obey your parents. He's speaking to husbands and wives and fathers and mothers. And he's speaking directly to children. And he says, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then he quotes the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise. That it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. That was true with Old Testament Israelites. Children of Old Testament Israelites, if they obeyed this commandment, honor your father and your mother, they would live a long life. God would bless them. Paul takes these covenant promises made to children of Jewish parents, given to them at Mount Sinai, and that covenant, and he applies it to Gentile believers in the new covenant. The same law, the same promises, different covenant. You still have parents, you still have children. He is assuming that these children will want to honor their father and mother, motivating them by the fact if you don't, you won't live long. God is assuming by the inspired words of the Apostle Paul that there is every expectation these children they're not already saved will come to a saving knowledge of Christ by virtue of the fact they're part of the covenant they're receiving the blessings and privileges of the covenant in fact when have you ever seen the apostle Paul address different groups of people in the church who obviously were Christians and then go address non-Christians in the church Paul's not addressing non-Christians he's addressing children of Christians who may already be Christians or on the way of being Christians, just by virtue of the fact that they are children of these believing parents. I'll let you think about that one. Seventh line of evidence, the language of inclusion of entire families in the new covenant is very strong. We'll just go to a couple of these. Go with me to um, Acts chapter 3. We'll have to be quick on this. Verse 25 you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the, what does it say? Families of the earth be blessed. Of course, that was the promise, right? Back in Genesis 17. And you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's very, very obvious language. We, we oftentimes think of conversion in terms of an individual. He doesn't say that, Abraham, your, your offspring and your offspring, all the individuals who believe will be blessed. He says there's going to be families of the earth 
Gentile families. They're going to be brought into the church by virtue of the conversion of the father and hopefully the wife and the children. But these families, these entire families are going to be blessed. Because these entire families, through Christ, are brought into the church. Very likely by the instrumentation of the salvation of one of the parents. The the Bible chooses to use that language, families of the earth, not individuals. And of course you have Acts 16, the household baptism of Lydia in her household, which the point is not necessarily that babies were present and baptized, though that could have been the case, but that Lydia saw the gospel was for her entire household. She believed Acts 3.25, that God's going to bless families of the earth. So they were brought into the church. So these sort of lines of thinking, I, I think are absolutely fundamental if you're going to understand the, the debate regarding baptism. Again, we have tabled for a moment the technical discussion of baptism, okay? Who it's applied to. Is it only applied to believers who make a valid profession of faith or is it applied to babies of legitimate Christian parents? We've tabled that discussion just to make the argument that it seems to me is very clear that the children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. They are part of the families of the earth that are blessed by God. They are part of the children that are described in the prophecies of the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They are children that are considered holy by God. They are children that are part of a better covenant. They, they are children that are receiving the blessings of God. And it is often the case that when we view our children this way, that they often come to a saving knowledge of Christ at a very young age. Faith is still required. I mean, we mentioned Psalm 8, that from nursing babes, the praises of God will come from their lips, from nursing babies. And we mentioned the fact that John the Baptist was converted in the womb. I don't know how many Christians are converted in the womb. I mean, how could you ever answer that question? We, we know at least one was. We know Paul was set apart in his mother's womb to be an apostle. If he was set apart in his mother's womb to be an apostle of Christ, then that assumes that he was set apart in his mother's womb to be a believer in Christ. You can't be an apostle of Christ unless you're a believer in Christ. So I don't know how many children are converted in the womb. We aren't to assume salvation. But we also are not to assume that there is the same degree of hope for our children as there are for pagan children. Because there's not. Scripture is very clear. God specifically works through families. God specifically blesses godly families. And that the norm is for the children of believing parents to become believers. Now, if you agree with me at this point, I don't care what your position on baptism is. I really don't. 
adopt whatever position you want. I just don't want you to believe in baptismal regeneration. And I don't want you to assume that your children are going to be saved. And I also don't want you to assume that they're not going to be saved. And if we agree on that, then the only other question is, when do you baptize the child? And I think there's room, because both positions are orthodox, to hold to either credo-baptism or pedo-baptism. Now, I have my own position, and I plan to share my own position with you. Just not today, because we didn't get through all of these notes. I still have three more points, three more lines of evidence that confirm children of believing parents are members of the new covenant. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth, the clarity of your word, the power of your word. Father, we pray you would give us wisdom as we think through these things. Help us to seek to honor you, not honor our precious views, but to honor what scripture teaches on these issues. To you be the glory, the honor, and the praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.